1988, a book simply entitled The Gospel According to Jesus was published. Written by Pastor John MacArthur, it caused a firestorm in the evangelical world. The, the combatants in the debate were primarily led by uh, Dr. MacArthur on one side and some professors at Dallas Theological Seminary on the other, namely Zane Hodges and Charles Ryrie. Soon it seemed that everyone was embroiled in the fray, taking one side or the other, seminaries and, and profs weighed in, pastors across the country were preaching their positions, including yours truly. I was like eight, maybe a little older. What, what was the nature of the debate? At the risk of reigniting the flames, the two sides in the battle were labeled lordship salvation and easy believism. The debate largely boiled down to this question. Can a person accept Jesus as Savior and, and be saved without acknowledging Jesus as Lord? Now you think about that for a moment. Ask another way. Does a person have to repent? That is, turn from their sin in order to be saved. You have to understand that this struck at the very root of the gospel. In fact, uh, Pastor MacArthur's first sentence in the book asked the question, what is the gospel? The issue at stake was, what must a person believe to become a Christian? Those on one side said the gospel is simply the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners, and salvation is found in believing or receiving that truth by faith, by simple faith plus nothing. Jesus died for sinners. By believing that Jesus died for your sin, you can be saved. Sounds easy enough, simple enough. Those on the other side of the debate acknowledged that truth, but suggested further that repentance, that is a, a willingness, even a desire to turn from sin, was a necessary part of the salvation experience. That is, submitting to the lordship of Jesus and his right to rule our lives is necessary in order to be called his followers. We were, after all, dead in trespasses and sin, but when we were made alive by the Spirit in the new birth, we call that regeneration, our new nature uh, uh, is now dead to sin, alive to righteousness. Jesus himself said, except you repent. And by the way, when I say the word repent, it's a little bit more than just being sorry for your sin or sorry you got caught. Repentance is includes a desire to turn away from sin. And Jesus said, except you repent, you will perish in your sin. The gospel according to Jesus. A little arrogant, kind of an arrogant title. That's what the premise is. The simplest way to ask the question is this. Can Jesus be Savior without being Lord? Will he forgive your sin if you have no desire to turn from your sin? 
In other words, can Jesus just be used as a fire escape out of hell? Jesus, will you save me from the consequences of my sin while I continue to pursue and even enjoy sin? Sounds like a bargain. This was a serious fracture in the evangelical church. MacArthur went so far as to write the following in his book. I am certain that no one can be saved who is either unwilling to obey Christ or consciously rebellious against the lordship of Christ. That's, those are strong words. He goes on, the gospel in vogue today holds forth a false hope to sinners. It promises them that they can have eternal life, yet continue to live in rebellion against God. Indeed, it encourages people to claim Jesus as Savior, yet defer until later the commitment to obey Him as Lord. You know, Jesus, will you be my Savior? Maybe I'll get around to making you my Lord one day. One more. They've been told that the only criterion for salvation is knowing and believing some basic facts about Christ. They, they, they hear from the beginning that obedience is optional. There need be no turning from sin, no resulting change in lifestyle, no commitment, not even a willingness to yield to Christ's lordship. You say, well, which one is right, Scott? What do we believe? I'm going to let you grapple with that just for a moment. All right, you're done. <laughs> you really didn't expect me not to give you my opinion, did you? <laughs> I think, I think, I believe the debate has mostly subsided, abated. Most today understand that in order to be saved, there must be, yes, faith in the finished work of Christ on his cross and a corresponding desire to live as a follower of Christ. Yeah, of course. That includes true repentance, a sorrow for sin, and a desire to turn from it and pursue holiness. Now, this is critically important. It gets a little tricky here. It is not the pursuit of holiness that, that makes you a Christian. It just proves that you really are a Christian. And, and I would point out, by the way, just for your consideration, since I am a numbers guy, that Jesus is called Savior some 16 or 17 times in the New Testament. I say 16 or 17 because I've always heard 17. I wouldn't count it. I only found 16. I'm sure I missed one. And yet he is referred to as Lord over 400 times in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, where you have all of this preaching of the gospel, all of this presentation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's referred to as Savior twice. And he's referred to as Lord over 100 times. It seems to me the overwhelming weight of evidence is that Jesus is Lord. As your Savior, he is also the Lord of your life. The word Lord speaks of him being master or ruler. It speaks of his right to rule your life, to sit on the throne of your heart. Of course, our, our, our lives as followers of Jesus are imperfect. Now, this may come as a bit of a shock to some of you. Hold on. But there have been times after I was saved that I sinned. I want to live 
as a fully devoted follower of Christ, but I still live in this imperfect flesh and in this imperfect world, like with you. And while I have been redeemed out of the slave market of sin, while I'm no longer a slave to sin, in fact, I would say it this way. Every time I sin, it's a conscious choice I make. Been, 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 been saved, no longer a slave to sin, I sometimes still sin. Ask my wife. Better yet, don't ask my wife. And I'm sure that there have been times, having surrendered your life to Christ, that you have had to surrender again. You see, while Christ is Savior and Lord, there are times that we forget. And we wrestle back the, the control, and we must enthrone him again in our hearts. It's not that we need to be saved again, don't misunderstand me, but it's that we need to let go again. Over and over, the New Testament declares Jesus' lordship. Let me give you just a few verses of the hundreds that I could give you. Philippians chapter 2. He, 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 he's just talked about how Jesus took on flesh to die for sinners. He's just talked about the gospel. And for this reason, because of the gospel, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the goal. Romans 10, 9. Most of you memorized it in Awana. If you did that, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. Verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 14, verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord, both of the living and the dead. One more just for good measure. Second Corinthians chapter 4, for we, Paul says, do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord, or as Lord. Again, it seems to me that the preponderance of evidence is that Jesus died and rose again to save you from your sin and to be the Lord of your lives. Just in case you were kind of wondering what side I took back in 1988. And yet, and yet, while the debate about his lordship has seemingly subsided the issue is still with us in practice. What do I mean? We still have lots of people who want Jesus to be Savior, but have no interest practically for him to be Lord. Right? Anybody here want to live forever? Say, I do. Ask Jesus in your heart. And continue to live in rebellion, but that's okay. I prayed a prayer. I, I said some right words. I walked an aisle, signed a card, shook a hand. I was baptized. I was saved. Haven't much lived like it since then. This idea of asking Jesus to forgive you of sin while continuing to pursue sin is a foreign concept in the Bible. James even says this kind of faith, this faith with no resulting works of righteousness is a dead faith. 
The New Testament is replete with calls to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to submit to him as Lord. We have one such passage in our text today as we continue our study of the book of Colossians. You can turn to Colossians chapter 2. Now, we must remember this is why the flow of, of Paul's argument or his discussion is why it's so important that we study books from beginning to end. We, we know that he's writing because he's heard a group of false teachers had arrived at Colossae, likely Laodicea. One of his primary purposes is to correct the false teaching and to, and to warn this church. And he started, he, he started by exalting Jesus because it's clear that whatever these teachers were propagating in some way it was diminishing the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. So, so Paul spends the entire first chapter declaring his supremacy. Jesus is, is it. He's sufficient. We have everything we need or ever will need in the person of Jesus Christ. You can stop the search. But before addressing the false teacher specifically, Paul has one more thing to say about Jesus, about his gospel, and about him being Lord. In Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, look at it with me. Therefore, in light of everything that I've written about Jesus up to this point, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And from there, he is going to like obliterate these false teachers. I've said this several times through our study. If we stay focused on Jesus and we stay focused on the word of God, if we become so familiar with spiritual truth, when heresy rears itself, we will spot it a mile away. This is what Paul is encouraging the Colossians and us to do through chapter one, through these verses. Continue with Christ be rooted, built, in, built up, and established in your faith. And then these numbskulls won't have an impact on what you believe. Now, Colossians 1, verse 28, is the theme of Colossians, and I, I believe that it is. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that here's the, we may present every man complete in Christ, then these verses today are, are kind of the heart of the letter. In these verses, Paul points back to, to what he has said in chapter 1, and then having reminded us of that, he encourages us to continue to walk in Jesus as Lord and Christ. And then in verse 7, he very simply tells us how. That's the outline that we're going to follow. The command uh, in verse 6, walk in him. Verse 7, this is how you do it. So let's look at it starting in verse 6. Paul starts with that word, therefore. That word points us back to what has come before. And I think it points back to, to the entire first chapter. Most think that chapter 1 is, is a rather lengthy introduction uh, to the letter. And this morning we finally arrive at the body of the, or the main part of the letter. And you see, in the, in the first part of the letter, through, through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul has been making all kinds of of propositional statements, just stating truth. Now he gets to the main thrust of the letter and he's going to call us as a result of everything that I've said, there are some things that you need to do. In fact, 
chapter, the verse that we're going to get to this morning, this is actually the very first imperative, the first command in the letter. So, he has spent all this time laying a foundation, an important foundation for the commands that he's getting ready to give. In light of the fact that Jesus is supreme, in light of the fact that he uh, is the reconciler, in light of the fact that, that I have been made a, 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 a um, minister of this message for the church, in light of the fact that I have suffered so much for the gospel, in light of the fact that Jesus is the central message of this mystery of the gospel, in light of the fact that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge we could ever want, in light of all of that, here you got to do something. But even before Paul gives us this very first marching order, he says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, stop right there. This word received is a semi-technical term which speaks of tradition that has been handed down and received and passed on. Now, I know that when we hear the word tradition, that's a bad Thing. That's a negative word. But it's not with what Paul is talking about. He has used this, or he, he used this word received a number of times to speak of the gospel that has been handed down and that he is handing on many places, one most notably in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at that with me. I'll put it on the screen. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, in other words, I passed on, which also you received. There's the same word, semi-technical term, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I passed on, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as a first important what I received. So I got this message, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to Scripture, and I passed it on to you. The word received speaks of that which is received. Re, uh, received and passed on. It speaks of traditional teaching that's been handed to you. It came from me through Epaphras to you. Now, I want to stop and camp on this just for a moment because tradition today, when we hear that, we think of the word tradition today and we think very, we don't think very favorably of that term. If it's been handed down to us, in fact, we are being given permission in almost every corner, we're, we're given permission to reject it or at least to question it because it is, well, traditionally held truth. I mean, come on. Are you going to believe that nonsense just because someone told you? Because your parents passed it down to you? Because some preacher, some pastor you grew up with told you that? Come on. You need to, just because it's been handed down to you, you need to reject it. And I want to argue that the opposite is true. That if it has been handed down to you by trustworthy sources, that you should hold on to it unless you are given good reason to reject it. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, we don't reject it just because it's been handed down. We reject it only if there's good reason to do so. Now, I've ridden this horse many times, and I figure I got a few more good licks before I finally put it to sleep or to death. When Rob Bell first came on the scene, he became widely known for his Numa 
videos, very popular in youth groups and in college groups. Uh, I, they were all the rage. And I watched several of them, and they were compelling, good um, communicator. But there were times that he caused me to raise my eyebrows just a bit. Then he wrote his first book called Velvet Elvis. I read the book, and it, it caused me even greater concern. You see, in this book, he gave his readers permission to ask questions to question doctrinal traditions that had been handed down, okay? He said, go ahead and do that. And the example that he gave was the virgin birth. So he says, you've heard that, that Jesus was born of a virgin. Is that true, he asks. Then he gives all kinds of explanations for the miraculous birth of Jesus that have been suggested through the years. And he's, he says, come on, now question that truth, question similar truths that are handed down to you. And then his premise is, if it's true, it will stand. I believe that. The only problem is, he never answers the question in the book about the truth of the virgin birth. In fact, he kind of left you hanging. Well, is it, by the time he got done, you're kind of going like, well, is it, is it, is it true or not? And it almost sounded like it didn't really matter whether you believed it or not. I wanted to yell at the, no, excuse me. I did yell at the book, kind of like I am right now. Because I want you to understand that it is true. It is clearly substantiated in Scripture. But when you finished, you were left wondering. I scratched my head. And then he came out with a later book. I don't know if it was the next one, but a later book. Where he continues to question truth, handed down. It was clearly taught in Scripture. And he has arrived as what is, what is called heterodoxy or other truth. Actually, I call it heresy. He questions the reality of an eternal hell, even though that has been handed down through the centuries and is clearly taught in Scripture. Now listen to me. I do not relish the idea of eternal punishment for those who do not know Christ, nor will I deny it. Whether or not, whether or not I or Rob likes it is not relevant. I don't care how cool he is. What is relevant is that the Scripture teaches this truth. It has been handed down to us. Don't deny truth just because it has been traditionally held. I would argue just the opposite. Back to our text. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Literally, literally there are two definite articles here. So it literally reads, as you have received the Christ Jesus the Lord. Paul uses those three names interchangeably in all kinds of different forms throughout his letters, but this is the only time in the entire New Testament that it appears this way. The Christ Jesus, the Lord. And most feel that Paul is highlighting what we have received about Jesus. He is the Christ, the promised Jewish Messiah, and he is the Lord, the sovereign ruler. He is the master. So, just as you have received Jesus as the Christ and the Lord, as clearly spelled out in chapter 1, so walk in him. 
It's the result of everything I've talked about. I want you to understand, this is what you received. You understand this. Jesus is the Christ and he is the Lord. Therefore, walk in him. It's in the present tense. Continue to walk in him. We know that the word walk, when you use the scriptures, talking about a way of life. We could say it this way. Live your life in complete and continued orientation toward Jesus, who is the Lord and the Christ. Walk with full reference to him. Walk in the sphere of who he is as Lord and all he has done as Christ. He is, he is it. Take every step you take recognizing he's Christ and he's Lord. How do we do that? Verse 7. This is how we walk in full orientation, with full reference to the Lord and to the Christ. Paul follows this command to walk with four participles. Though you are not grammatically challenged, understand that you have a main verb and the participles that then support the main verb. He says, I want you, there's the command, I want you to walk in him. And this is, these four participles tell us how. This is what a walk in him looks like. First, having been firmly rooted in him. This is also written in a specific tense. It's a perfect tense, which speaks of something that happened in the past to you, but it has ongoing impact. I want you to think about that. Something happened in the past that has ongoing impact. In the past, you were firmly rooted or you were firmly planted in Christ. It's probably talking about when you received that traditional teaching about Jesus as the Lord and the Christ. He's talking about when you were saved in the perfect tense. So he says, remember, having been rooted, perfect means it has ongoing impact. Here's a question for you. What ongoing impact has your profession of Christ made in your life? Has it been a difference? Can anybody see it? Are you one of those incognito Christians? I believe in Jesus, but nobody knows. Maybe he doesn't know. You were firmly rooted in Christ. Your roots went down into him. Remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. To be the vine is the source of strength and nourishment and, 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 and source of life. You're the branch. You cannot, he says, apart from me, if you become disconnected from me, you can do nothing. You are firmly rooted in Christ. So to continue to walk in him, it means to stay connected to Jesus whose roots go down deeply into us. Second, you are currently, doesn't use perfect, you are currently being built up in him. It's interesting, Michael Talley pointed out to me um, that Paul starts here with this idea of movement, motion. I want you to walk in him, and then he immediately goes to two metaphors that talk about not moving. <laughs> Paul was fond of mixing metaphors. This is how you walk. You start by stopping. By being rooted in him, then you continue to be built up in him on this solid foundation. Please notice how everything is in him. To walk in him, you must be rooted in him. You must be built up in him. Uh, to be 
built up simply speaks of growing in Christ. Paul said that basically the same thing in Ephesians 2, having been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, um, in whom the whole, uh, Jesus is the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing up into a holy temple in the Lord. You are being built up to be a holy temple. That is true individually and corporately. You, I can look at you, if you know Jesus, I can look at you and say, you are the temple of God. And then I can look at us corporately and say, we are the temple of God. Third, Paul says, we continue to walk in him as we are strengthened in faith. Several points I want to make about this. I need to move very quickly to finish up this morning. Please notice that those first three participles are passive. This is critically important. Slow down here just a minute so you can catch that. What this means is they are not things that you do, but they are things that are done to you. That's interesting. Paul just gave us the first command. Finally, he says, all this stuff. And we finally get to chapter 2. And he says, hey, here's something I can do. Walk in him. Then he says, by the way, here's how you walk in him. You don't do anything. He does it to you. Most consider these to be divine passives, which means these are things that God does. So Paul gives us our first imperative, our first marching order, walk in him. And you continue to walk in him as you have been rooted in Christ as you are being built up in Christ and as you are strengthened in faith in, uh, by God. All this happens as God does his work in your lives, which means, what that means is he gives us a command and he says that God's going to do it through you. He's going to do it in you. Now, I want you to think about this just for a moment. Remember Paul's prayer back in chapter 1? It was not that long ago. Chapter 1, in verses 9 to 12, Paul prayed these words. For these, or this is what he says I'm praying about for you, Colossians. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. And here's what we're asking. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Okay, there's that walk talk again. To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. This is what we're praying. We're asking that you increase in the knowledge of God. We're asking that you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Joyously giving thanks. Now when you start right there, and I want you to notice the similarities between what he prayed in chapter 1 and what he sort of commands in chapter 2. This is chapter one, bearing fruit, going to go to the next slide, sorry, bearing fruit in every good work. This is what I pray for you, because I want you to be rooted in him. I want you to, I'm praying that you, be, that you increase in the knowledge of God as you are built up in him. I want you to be, I'm praying that you be strengthened with all power, established in your faith. And I want you, the end of all of this to be, so that you are giving thanks to the Father, so that you are overflowing with Gratitude. Do, do you see the similarities here? The point is, Paul knew the order. He, Paul first prayed for these things because he understood that it took God by his Holy Spirit in you before you could ever bear fruit to grow in him and to be strengthened. Paul got the order right. He prayed, then commanded that Christians do their part. We must do the same thing. It is the empowering work of God in our lives that enables us to walk in Him. 
So to walk in Him is first to allow God by His Spirit to do His work in you. We call this process sanctification. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sanctification as the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives with which we cooperate. Exactly. So you walk in Him as you cooperate with the Holy Spirit as He does His work in your life. He started by rooting you in Christ. I don't know if you know that He did that, but the work of the new birth, the work of regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit. He did that in you. You didn't have much to do with that at all. He did that in you, and now He is building you up, and He is strengthening faith. And the word your, go ahead and go to the next Slide so we can see the verse again. That word your, strengthened, established in your faith, the word your is actually not in the Greek text. And I think it's important because I think it's been placed there for interpretation, uh, for understanding, but I think it's improper. I don't think it belongs. Literally, it reads, so that you will be strengthened in faith. The question then is, what's the faith that we're talking about? Is, is it your faith? Is it your act of believing or is it you being strengthened in the object of your faith? Given all that Paul is talking about in this passage, I think it's that. Everyone agrees with that. Yours shouldn't be there, right? Cross it out in your Bible. It's not in the Greek. So you're not messing with the Word of God. It's not there. Translators mess with the Word of God. So that you will be strengthened in faith. So you have been rooted in Christ you're being built up in Christ, and then you are strengthened in the faith. Not your faith. See, here's the challenge when we put the word your in there. Some of you have struggled for many, many years wondering, did I believe the right thing? Did I say the right words? Did I believe enough? Can I tell you that your salvation has nothing to do with the strength of your belief? It has everything to do with the strength of the object believed. It has nothing to do with whether or not you believed right or strongly, I should say. Yes, believe right, but not strongly enough. The strength of your salvation is found in the Christ who saved us, not in the strength of your faith. So you will be established in, your, in the faith of Jesus Christ. So the Spirit is at work in your life as you cooperate with Him to be strengthened in what you believe, namely Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Lord. Just as you were instructed, takes us back to, to the beginning, just as you received, you received it by instruction, probably through Epaphras, which leads very quickly to the last participle, overflowing with gratitude. This is where we're going. See, this is... This is how people who have been passively operated on by the Spirit respond. Christians overflow with gratitude because they realize that all that has been done for them and to them is through the work of the Spirit. Listen very carefully. There is nothing in this Christian life, there is nothing in this Christian life for which you can look in the mirror and say, what a guy. Thank you very much. Rather, we bow our heads in humble gratitude and say, what a God. Thank you very much. Please remember that Paul is writing from prison, and yet here he is overflowing 
with gratitude. When he thinks of all that God has done for him through his spirit to root him in Christ, to build him up, and to strengthen him. Let's stand for prayer. Father, I'm always amazed when I go to, to, to dive into the depth uh, uh, of, the, of the pool of Scripture to find out how much is there. We just spent the last 35 or 40 minutes talking about like two verses, and we, we just skimmed it. There's so much value and truth in the Word of God. Thank you for the way that you, you are using it to build us up and to strengthen to encourage and establish faith. Thank you for the work that your spirit did to plant us in Christ. And now I pray as a church and as individuals that you would help us to walk in him. He's all we've got. My hope is found in nothing less than him. In Christ's name we pray, amen.